Okay, so we are doing now Thursday's portion of Pasha Shoftim. So we are up to chapter 18, verse 14. And we are just being told in Wednesday's portion that we shouldn't be like the nations around us that try to do all these neurochromatic ways to find out what's going to be or what's going on. And the verse continues today, for these nations that you are possessing, they listen to astrologers and diviners, but as for you, not so has God your God given for you. So Rashi comments on this, that God does not want you to listen to these types of people because he rested his presence on prophets and on the breastplate that the high priest wore that they could ask questions and the letters of the stones would light up and through them God could communicate. So Rashi is saying, don't go to all these roads of evil to find out what is and what will be. Turn to God, and God has given his words to the prophet. God has given his words to the high priest. So you have a vehicle to find out. A prophet from your midst, from your brothers like me, shall God your God establish for you? To him shall you listen. So Moses here is saying that just as I'm from your midst, from your brothers, so too in my stead will be from prophet to prophet. So in other words, since we just said that we don't want you to be like the Gentiles and go through all these path roads of evil to find out things that you can't possibly know yourself, well, God has given us a road, and that road is prophecy. According to all that you asked of God, your God, in Chorev, Chorev was where we receive the Torah, on the day of the congregation, saying, I can no longer hear the voice of God, my God, and this great fire I can no longer see, so that I shall not die. Then God said to me, they have done well in what they have said. I will establish a prophet for them from among their brothers like you. I will place my words in his mouth. He shall speak from everything that I will command him. It shall be that the man who will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I will make demands of him. But the prophet who will willfully speak a word in my name, that which I have not commanded him to speak, or who will speak in the name of the gods of others, that prophet shall die. So the verse here is speaking of people that are either prophets doing the wrong thing or people that are claiming to be prophets. So Rashi explains the various offenses here because we're talking here about the death penalty. Someone here is obviously doing something very wrong. So one was a prophet speaking what I've not commanded him to speak, meaning I told this to his fellow prophet that sometimes when one prophet received a prophecy, many other prophets also were privy to the prophecy, but it's as if they were, so to speak, I'm using this term loosely, eavesdropping. They were hearing, they were, it was being shared with them, but they knew it wasn't their prophecy. So if one such prophet takes this prophecy that he was fortunate enough to hear, but he knows it's not his prophecy, and he gives it over, that's a capital offense. Or someone who speaks in the name of the gods of others. Even if someone, as a prophet, is saying something, and he's saying the truth, he's saying Torah's truth, but he's claiming it in the name of an of a, of a idol, this also is a death penalty. And when it says he shall die, Rashi says dying means here by strangulation. Because when the Torah speaks of death without specifying which one, 
it means by strangulation. So we have here, Rashi explains, three people who have a sin involving prophecy that are going to be killed by a human court, by a court of 23 judges. They don't have to go all the way to the grand court of 70, but they can't do this in a court of three. It's a court of 23 judges. One, someone who's prophesizing something he didn't hear, or someone who's prophesying something that wasn't said to him, but as we explained, was said to a different prophet, and we see sort of was privy to that divine communication, or, as we're saying, someone who prophesies in the name of a pagan deity, in the name of an idol. So these are three tremendous transgressions that a prophet or someone who's wanting to be a prophet could make. And for all of them, there will be the death penalty by the hand of the court system. And of course, as in every situation, if they deserve death by the hand of the court and the court can't punish, then God takes care of it. But this is officially given over to be killed by the court as versus prophets who are transgressing and their death is in the hand of heaven directly. For example, someone who suppresses his prophecy, meaning God gave him a prophecy and he's not going to give it over. Or someone who violates the words of a prophet. He's not listening to the words of the prophet. Or someone who violates his own words of prophecy. A prophet who says his his own prophecy and violates those words. All three of these situations, this, this, this all the death penalty, but not through the court system. This is from God directly. Next verse. When you will say in your heart, how can we know the word that God has not spoken? Meaning, Rashi explained, we're referring here actually, or, or a situation where this occurred, was with Hananiah, the son of Azor. So he gave a prophecy, a positive prophecy because there were certain vessels in the temple that were already taken by the Babylonians and taken to Babylonia. And he gave a prophecy that in two years these vessels are going to return. In the meanwhile, Yermia, Jeremiah, is crying about, about other parts of the temple that were not yet taken and are going to be taken. So here we have two conflicting prophecies, two conflicting prophets. Both of them are known to be prophets. So Hanani ben Azor is saying all the vessels that were taken to Babylonia in two years are coming back. And Yirmiya, Jeremiah, is giving a prophecy that all the rest of the parts of the temple that weren't taken yet, they're going to be taken. And they're both known prophets. What do you do? Jewish people are saying, what do we do in that situation? So the next verse, what the prophet will speak in the name of God, and that thing will not occur and not come about, that is the word that God has not spoken with willfulness has a prophet spoken it. You shall have no fear of him. So Rashi explains, if the prophet tells you something's supposed to happen, it's something good, and it doesn't happen, well, obviously God didn't say it. And we're supposed to kill that person. That's death by the hand of the court system. Um, so that, like, for example, that would apply to what we just heard. In the previous Rashi, Hananiah ben Azor is saying, in two years, the vessels are coming back. Well, if two years pass, and the vessels don't come back, so you know he was a false prophet, and that prophecy was false because it was a good thing. And you can't say, well, maybe we didn't deserve it. No, if God says a good prophecy, it will happen. 
We should never fear that. God said good news for us. He's going to keep his word. So it didn't happen and it was good news and obviously the prophet was false. If conversely, the prophet is warning about impending bad and we repent and then the bad doesn't happen, that doesn't mean he was a false prophet. It means God accepted our repentance and therefore the bad did not come about. But a person could say, well, that's only helpful advice if the prophet is saying something that's supposed to happen in the future. But what if a prophet says, don't do such and such? I am telling you as a prophet of God, don't do such and such. How do we know if he's genuine or not? So Raji says the basic rule of thumb is if he's coming to push you away from any of the commandments, don't listen to him. If the prophet is telling you, as a prophet of God, I am telling you that we no longer keep the Sabbath, well, I know that's not true. The commandments will never be taken away like that, so obviously he's a false prophet. What if the prophet comes and says, I'm telling you in the name of God that this Sabbath, you're supposed to not keep the Sabbath. Well, then it becomes more complex, and then it really depends on what's his history, so to speak. Meaning, if this is a person who we know is absolutely righteous, who we know is is a, a, a absolute prophet that he has said, you know, like he's, he's very certified. Many times he is the prophet, and he is telling us to do something that normally God does not want, as long as he does not say to serve idols, we're supposed to listen to him. So there's a lot of conditions here. If this person we don't know, some mysterious stranger, or someone that maybe once gave a prophecy, so we don't really, he doesn't really have a long track record, or we don't absolutely know his righteousness, we don't listen to him if he's telling us to violate any of the commandments. But if we absolutely know his righteousness, we absolutely know his track record of prophet, and he's not telling us to do anything that has to do with idolatry, and he's clearly stipulating this is only for a temporary time, then the prophet does have the ability to do this. And then Rashi quotes probably the most famous example of this concept, which is the prophet Elijah, who obviously was very well known, had a tremendous track record as being one of the greatest prophets the Jews ever had. And during a time when one was not allowed to build a temporary altar, he built this temporary altar to very much impact the Jewish people on the falseness of the idols they were serving and on the only true service being the service of God. So why was he allowed to do that? Because as a prophet, known for his righteousness, known for his track record as a prophet, telling us something that has nothing to do with serving idols. In other words, he wasn't telling us to serve idols. And he said clearly it was just for this time. In our history, we've had other situations, like for example, um, when, the, when they finished constructing the first temple, there were seven days of feasting. One of those days was Yom Kippur, and that year we were told by the king prophet, King Solomon, not to fast on Yom Kippur that year, instead to celebrate. Or when we have um, in the story of Purim, where the Jews had a three-day fast before Esther goes to the king, so one of those days was Passover. And we fasted. That was, again, if we were told from now on forever to fast on Passover, it's forbidden. Or forever to eat on Yom Kippur, it's forbidden. But if we're told just for this temporary time, then there is the ability here. And we're told, don't, don't be fearful of this person, meaning if you think, well, maybe he has power, but take him to the courts and say he's guilty, and we're going to get in trouble. No, don't, don't be fearful. 
argue in favor of his guilt. Don't be fearful they can be punished because of him. Okay, next chapter, chapter 19, verse 1. When God your God will cut down the nation whose land God your God gives you, and you will possess them, and you will settle in their cities and in their houses. You shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which God your God gives you to take possession of it. Prepare the way for yourself and divide three times the boundary of your land that God your God causes you to inherit, initially for any killer to flee there. The Rashi says we have to prepare the way by putting up signs on the crossroads showing the direction to these cities of refuge. We're speaking here of cities of refuge, and as Rashi explains in the next Rashi, that we took the, and there were, the Rashi explained this soon, but I'll explain it now to make it clear, there were ultimately nine cities of refuge, meaning three were on the other side of the Jordan, the east side, three were on the west side, and three we never yet received, and we are going to receive the final three in the times of the Messiah which is a very strong proof that the Messiah has to come as a physical reality, otherwise this commandment can never be fulfilled of setting up these nine cities of refuge. Because historically, we only set up six. We only could set up the other three when we receive the extra three lands of the Cane, Canadian, Kermani, the tribes of non-Jews that we did not yet receive, only received by the times of the Messiah. So we have three such cities of refuge on the east side of the Jordan, three such cities of refuge on the west side of the Jordan. And what we're commanded to do here is take our land on the east and west side of the Jordan and divide it into three equal sections. Then in each section have one such city of refuge. So in other words, they're all equidistant from each other to make it most convenient. If someone murdered, accidentally or deliberately for that matter, they're supposed to run to that city of refuge. The city of refuge meaning it's a refuge because if they don't run there, and the relatives of the person that was murdered is allowed to murder the murderer. But if they run into the city of refuge, then the relatives are not allowed to murder them, and then we give it over to the court system. If this is determined by court to be a deliberate murder, they are punished with the death penalty. And if this is determined to be an accidental murder, their punishment, the consequence, is for them to live in the city of refuge until the passing, the death, of the current high priest. And this will be their absolution. This will be the atonement for their soul, for even though it was accident, but accidentally taking someone else's life. So the verse continues to explain this. This is a matter of the killer who shall flee there and live. One who will strike his fellow without knowledge that he did not hate him yesterday or before yesterday. Or who will come with his fellow into the forest to chop wood. And his hand swings with the axe to cut the wood, and the iron will shoot off the wood and find his fellow and he dies. We're given here a very specific type of situation of what we mean here by this accidental murderer. So you're chopping the wood and Rashi explains your hand is shifting on the axe to make the axe fall on the wood. And what happened was accidentally, well there's actually two versions our sages explain this verse, Either the iron, the axe head, slipped off the wooden handle and hit someone in a way that they died from that iron, or when the iron is chopping the wood, a piece of the wood got, you know, slipped as it was chopped by the axe and it shot out and killed someone. So in both of these cases, of course, you had absolutely no intention to kill anyone. You're chopping wood, and it was a complete accident. 
but there's still good things come through good people and bad things come through bad people. So for to be responsible on any level for someone's death, there's still a tremendous evil here that has to be atoned for. And the atonement is living forever long. I mean, again, until the death of the high priest, it could be in a day, it could be in 50 years. It's very much obviously a hand of heaven thing for the death of the high priest. And we're told, why does he have to run to the city of refuge? Lest the redeemer of the blood will chase after the killer for his heart will be hot. He will overtake him for the way with long and he shall strike him mortally. There is no judgment of death upon him for you do not hate him from yesterday and before yesterday. So in other words, the, the verse is saying, I'm telling you to prepare this way to the city of refuge and to prepare all these cities of refuge, which in addition to these six cities that we're discussing, all the 42 cities of the Levites, the Levites were given 42 cities, they also were cities of refuge and had the same uh, ability. Because, again, if you don't, if you are, if someone is a murderer and does not run to the city of refuge, then the relatives of the murdered person have the right to kill you. And they're, they're not considered murderers for this. They're allowed to. That's why you have your obligation to run to the city of refuge. This is going to be your penance. This is going to cleanse your soul. And, and this will help your spiritual road and will prevent, will not allow, once you're in the city of refuge, relatives do not have the right anymore to attack you and if they did so they would be viewed themselves as murderers therefore I command you saying you shall separate these three cities for yourself when God will broaden your boundary as I'm saying which is happening ultimately this time by the times of Messiah as his word to your forefathers and he will give you the entire land that he spoke to your forefathers to give as I mentioned Abraham was originally promised ten nations by God, of which we received seven. And three more, the lands of the Cany, Canadian, and Kadmaini, we are going to receive in the times of Messiah. So when we receive those final three lands by the times of Messiah, we will have the obligation then to set up not six cities of refuge, as we had historically thus far, but to set up nine. So again, this is a very special commandment because, because, we know we have a promise that they'll be the coming of the Messiah. But maybe the promise is a spiritual reality. You know, spiritual realities are good too, right? Virtual realities. Or say, no, this is linked to a commandment, a physical commandment to set up, to build a physical city and a physical piece of land. And therefore, this is, so to speak, our guarantee that the Messiah absolutely has to come because this commandment has to be filled, because all the commandments have to be filled, and has to come as a physical reality. So this is a very significant verse. When you observe this entire commandment to perform it, which I command you today, to love God your God and to walk in his ways all the years, you shall add three more cities to these three. Again, as Rashi explains it, then you're going to have nine. Three on east of the Jordan, three in the land of Canaan, the west of the Jordan, and these three that, again, will only be built in the times of Messiah. Of course, one could wonder why in the times of the Messiah, here we're saying the one commandment from all the 613 biblical commandments that are linked to the times of the Messiah in such a way that they can only be filled in the times of the Messiah is cities of refuge for murderers. We wouldn't assume there'd be too many murderers in the times of the Messiah. And there's many, 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 many answers to that question. Some say we'll need the cities of refuge for anybody who murdered since we last had functioning cities of refuge that they'll all have to, for a certain temporary amount of time, go to the cities of refuge to cleanse them, that's why we'll need the cities of refuge. 
and in a more esoteric way, City of Refuge is symbolic of the murder, protecting us from the murder we all have committed when we allow our animal nature to overcome our godly. Because every time we transgress, it's like an act of murder, that the, the blood of our godly soul is, so to speak, being spilled as we give in to the murderer, to the animal soul. Innocent blood shall not be shed in the midst of your land that God your God gives you as inheritance, for then blood will be upon you. But if there will be a man, so until now, of course, we're talking about accidental murderers. Now, we're going to say, but if there will be a man who hates his fellow and ambushes him and rises up against him and strikes him mortally and he dies and he flees to one of these cities. In other words, we're discussing here someone who plotted a murder, someone who ambushed a person. Rashi comments that we see from here a, a rule, our sages say, that if you transgress a relatively light commandment, in the end, it's going to lead you to violate a relatively severe commandment. Because first, you violated the commandment of hatred. We're told you're not allowed to hate your brother in your heart, so you hated somebody. And from hating him, you come to a very, very severe transgression, murdering him. Which is why the verse specifies that first you hated him. To teach us this lesson, we have to guard ourselves. Even something we say, yeah, it's not such a big deal. Because from this not such a big deal act, we'll just follow more and more severe ones. Then the elders of the city shall send him and take him from there and place him in the hands of the redeemer of the blood and he shall die. Your eyes shall not pity him. You shall remove the spillers of the innocent one's blood from Israel. It shall be good for you. And Rashi explains what we mean by this is that a person could say, listen, we already lost one Jew. This guy killed a Jew. Now we're going to kill this guy and then there'll be two Jews dead? Don't have that false compassion. A person who deliberately kills, if we can prove it with witnesses and mourning, we are supposed to put to death. Of course, it's almost impossible to truly um, give the death penalty in Jewish court because you need two kosher witnesses and two kosher warnings. But if he deserves the death penalty in the Jewish court and we cannot give it to him, we trust that God will take care of it as he takes care of everything.